may be seated. You had your Bibles, um, turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 7. Maybe if you're visiting with us and aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed the text for you on page 10 of your worship guide. Just a couple of announcements as you're turning there. Um, One, a reminder um, that officer nominations for the office of elder and deacon close um, at the end of the month. Um, So if you've not filled out that for me, you can find that online um, on our website. Um, You can also find a form that you can leave in the offering plate in the back of um, your worship guide. Well, uh, Luke chapter 7 we, um, we're continuing a series that we've based on Isaiah 7, which makes the promise, where God makes the promise that he's going to send a redeemer who will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then on uh, Psalm 34, 18, which promises this, that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We've been looking at different stories of Jesus that kind of combines those two. Like, what is it? What is the God who is near in the person of Jesus manifest himself as the God who is near to the brokenhearted? And so we're going to look at Jesus raising a widow's son here in Luke chapter 7. This is because Jesus is the incarnation of the God who is near to the brokenhearted. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 11. Soon afterwards, he, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who was died, who had died, was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, God is near to us, so would you join with me as we pray his blessing on his word preached. Let's pray. God... We would ask this, that with great power, you would tend to your word. We pray that you would stir our hearts and make them fertile ground for the seed of your word to be planted and bear much fruit. We pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the voice of Jesus and all of his beauty. We pray, God, that you would do a work of new life on some here today, maybe some of our children, some visitors, some who thought that they belonged to you but really have not, that you would awaken dead hearts and draw to Jesus. But we all need that. And so would you do that work in all of our lives? We pray this in his name. 
Amen. Here's the, one of the things suffering does um, in all of our lives. Suffering makes us ask questions. Right? It's, it's often why suffering is such a spiritually productive time in God's hands. Right? It always bears fruit in His people. It, and, and what it does, and one of the reasons it makes us ask questions, is because we realize that whatever has been sustaining us up until this time that we've drawn life from or put our hope in, Whatever that thing is that has been sustaining us, when the midst of suffering just doesn't sustain in the same ways. The solutions don't work. And so it makes us ask questions because pain functions to awaken us to this, the brokenness of our own lives and the brokenness of the world. As we rehearsed at the Christmas Eve service, the world is not the way God made it. We aren't the way we were made to be. Sin has broken us. Pain is the disruption to the way God intends the world to function. It's an intruder that alerts us to the fact that all of creation is under the curse of sin, that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And we can be lulled into a false sense of security until pain comes in and reawakens us. It's like a tornado warning. It's a siren that warns us as well that there is a greater threat that's coming And the greater threat is death and judgment. And so pain serves as a reminder, a siren call, that we are under the curse of sin. And that all pain eventually culminates in death. And both pain and death are intruders into God's good world. Perhaps this is what has made the pandemic so difficult for so many of us. We felt exposed. We want life to go on in the same ways that it did. We want to cover over with as much of an illusion as we can and just plot on. And yet there's this constant breaking in. This is not the way the world is supposed to work. And it forces us to come to this realization. We cannot manage our lives. And you see what had happened in this woman's life, this widow... In this little town, this backwood town of, of Israel called Nain, these two enemies had broken into this woman's life. This woman had gone through it. She had had her life severely interrupted by the pain of death, this intruder into God's good world. Luke tells us that she was a widow. Her husband had been taken away from her earlier in her life, and she was the woman wife whose husband was dead and now only had one son 
who had been taken from her in death. And these two intrusions of death was more than she could bear. Because it was more than just grief that she was bearing on her shoulders. It was hopelessness as well. See, a woman in the ancient Near East depended on men to provide for her. She had lost her husband. And she, in losing her husband, had lost her source of income and provision and safety. And when a woman lost her husband, those responsibilities fell down the line to her son. Her son was her livelihood. Her son was her retirement. She had no life insurance, no social security to fall back on, no survivor benefits from the government. She had nothing. She was extremely vulnerable. She had no protection in the present. She had no future hope. She was destitute, utterly hopeless. And then she meets Jesus, who comes to her in compassionate power and breaks into the utter brokenness and hopelessness. You see, we all live, as I said, under the curse of sin, and we need Jesus to be more than just a friend or a comforter to us. Quite honestly, at the worst times, a friends and comforter are good. They help us deeply to have a good word from a friend when you're grieving. Oftentimes, just their presence when you're in midst of grief, just their presence is deeply comforting. You've maybe entered into someone's house right after death or in the midst of grief, perhaps after a divorce. There's no telling what kind of grief, and you find yourself just, you're just hopeless, helpless. I don't know what to say. Your presence is often enough. You don't have to quote scripture or look for the right words to say. There's no magic here. Just be there. Your presence is a comfort. Be in the house. Be on the phone. Enter into their shattered world. But your hopelessness in those times is because we don't have the power in any of our hands to fix what has been broken by pain and death and suffering. We need more than just the power of Jesus, though. We need him in his compassion. Because Jesus is utterly helpless to us, utterly useless to us, if he's not full of power and compassion, right? He's got to be both in order for him to be the adequate one who, who enters in in redemptive ways into our shattered lives. See, if he's compassionate and not powerless, then, then he feels our affliction. He's moved by it, but there's nothing he can do about it. On the other hand, if he's powerful and not compassionate, he's able but then unwilling. And that Luke here is showing us in this short little story how he is both. Luke tells us that he has compassion on this widow and he tells us that this is a great crowd with Jesus. It's a, his lead-in. He says, look, there's this great crowd that's following Jesus. But then he switches gears and he tells us there's also a great crowd with this woman. And, and you can see it sort of playing out as the drama is building. These two great crowds are gathering together 
in a point at the city gates. There's a lot of chaos going on with large crowds, a, a lot of activity. And then and notice in verse 13, as these two great crowds are, are meeting and the, and the crowd following Jesus would obviously have been chattering about the things that he was doing in the world. And the crowd that's following the woman is weeping and wailing with a great deal of commotion. This is not a peaceful, serenic scene. These are two large crowds gathering together with a lot of commotion. And then Luke slows things down in verse 13. And the widow... And her entourage, as they're moving out of the city onto the way to the cemetery, because the cemeteries were outside the city gates, this is what we're told. The Lord saw her. She catches his eye. Her pain makes Jesus Notice her. She's not lost in the crowd. The depth of her pain and hopelessness causes his eye to zero in on her. Specifically, the great crowds, there's one that stands out. The one who is in pain and hopeless. He has an eye for our suffering. He's not indifferent. He notices those things. And then Luke tells us this. He saw her and he had compassion on her. I'd said this a few weeks ago that compassion comes from the Latin root for suffering. It literally means co-suffering, but real compassion is more than just I notice your suffering. It is, I am suffering with you, and therefore I will not stop until your suffering is relieved. In fact, literally, the Greek here is his gut was moved, right? There's something so deep inside of Jesus that his entire being, his gut was moved. He had a deep emotional response to this widow because of the deep pain that she was in. It was a compassion that moved him so deeply that he had a physical response to her pain. Her pain literally becomes his pain. And it's not the only time that Jesus responds this way to pain. When Lazarus dies, he sees Martha and Mary's pain. And though he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, their tears become his tears. He weeps too. That's compassion. I take on your pain. John even tells us that Jesus, in that story of Lazarus' death and resurrection, that Jesus grunts like an angry stallion. He's so moved. He was angered by the pain of the curse that was afflicting these women. And this is what he sees here with the widow of Nain. He's moved. He sees her. He's moved with compassion on her. Do you see this? 
it's so easy to exempt ourselves from this story. Like, well, my pain's not that bad. And you, you see, it's not the level of pain. It's the heart of Jesus. You don't have to be in your affliction. You don't have to reach that depths of hopelessness for him to see you. His heart is such that he sees the afflicted. And his heart is moved. He's not indifferent. And it's moved in compassion. It's God acknowledging your pain and entering into it. And one of the things that does is it gives us the freedom before God's throne to confess that I don't like this. There's no, there's no stoicism in the gospel. God, I don't like this. You've taken so much from me. I don't like where I'm at. I don't like what this is doing. I don't like what's going on. I am so deeply hurt and broken in this instance because I know this. You are the God who is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And I'll tell you, one of the things when we started try to live, you know, in denial about the pain that we're going through, you can't crush it down. It just comes out sideways. It comes out sideways in the people around you, the people that you love, the people in your spheres. It will come out. It often comes out as anger. Instead, it's that God, you're, you're the God of all compassion, the, the Father of all compassion, the God of all comforts. And I know this is your heart. And we're told, in fact, that, that Jesus and the writer of Hebrews says this, that he's the sympathetic great high priest. And then in his compassion, he even pleads, it drives him to plead our case before the Father. And you might find that, that Jesus in that moment doesn't remove, immediately remove your pain but when you are in that moment, you can be sure of that. Don't ever think that he is indifferent. Isn't there something much deeper in that that calls out for more than just a comforting friend, though? Again, it is a comfort to know that Jesus is compassionate in this way. This is his heart towards his people. But if it's not married to power, it is of not much use to us because we long for someone to do something and make things right again because suffering makes us ask two questions oftentimes does God care and will he do anything about this and I said a few weeks ago that the compassion of Jesus manifests in this that he will not rest until he has done suffering something about his people's plight and so we need his power too and Luke puts this on display he's moved he sees her he has compassion on her and then he says to her don't weep Luke leads into this passage telling us about a centurion's servant as at the point of death. This is the passage prior in Luke chapter 7. The centurion comes to Jesus and says, my, point, my servant's at the point of death. And Jesus rescues him too and restores him to life. 
And he does so at a, at a distance. He doesn't even come near to him. They just kind of like, yeah, he's okay. I've got this. He's okay. But notice here that Jesus brings something different to this situation. He, he stops the entire entourage. And he steps in with this command. Don't weep. It's, not, it's a command. It's not a, it's, it's not a suggestion. He is saying to her, stop your grieving. And how cruel that must have seemed at first. Can you imagine someone walking into the middle of a funeral, walking up in front of the church, putting his hand on the casket, and just said, quit weeping. Stop it. Stop your crying. But it's a command here that's rooted in the resurrection power of Jesus. If she could hear at that moment all that Jesus was saying, and he doesn't qualify it, he seldom qualifies. Oftentimes he just breaks into our lives with the word. If he would qualify everything, it would be, stop weeping, I'm going to raise the boy and give him back to you. But it's not there yet. He just speaks, stop weeping. It's often the case. He, he commands us, trust me. So often it breaks into our pain is the voice of God saying this, do you trust me? Are you willing to listen to me? And in those moments when he's arresting us, he's, he's taking our eyes and saying, look at me. I'm the father of compassion, the God of all comforts. I've raised my son from the dead. I'm taking the story to new heavens and new earth. I want you to stop and listen to me. And you see, this is what Jesus is doing because he's taking her to the ultimate comfort. Her ultimate comfort is not that he will raise her son from the dead. He is her ultimate comfort. And he's saying to her, stop weeping. Look at me. Don't, don't watch the order. Don't. I'm going to raise your son. Look at me. And then verse 14, look what he does next. Don't weep. And he came up and he touched the casket. And the bearers stood still. It's completely unnecessary. Again, he had just healed the centurion's servant from a distance. He never even saw the man, let alone touches him. But he enters in and he stops the entire entourage, and he touches the dead man. And again, we see the nearness of Jesus. He enters into our lives. He comes close to our suffering. There's something quite intimate about our pres his presence. His, he touches our pain, and his touch transforms everything. But there is so much more going on in this touch than just that. And the reason that they stood still, because touching death in ancient Israel, was forbidden. If you touched a dead person, you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't enter into worship. There would have to be an elaborate seven-day-long purifying process before they could enter into worship again, exiled as a result of death. And you see what's going on with Jesus. He's not threatened by death. He's different than the rest of these men and women. These men and women are under the curse of death. God, death is their constant enemy. It's always lurking around the shoulders. Death is the punishment for sin. We're all subject to it because we've all sinned. But Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not under the curse of sin. He's free from his penalty. 
He's perfect. He has no sin. Death, as a result, doesn't make him unclean. Instead, he cleanses death and brings new life. And you see what's going on in this moment. It's a little picture of the cross. At the cross, Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the penalty of death. He touched us in our sin and in doing so took our sin onto himself. Our guilt transferred to him. He who was clean became unclean and death overwhelmed him. So that in him, we could be brought to new life and declared to be the righteousness of God. And as a result, we came to life and went from curse to kingdom. That's the gospel. Jesus died under the curse of sin so that by faith in him, we might live under the blessing of God. You see, there's a pattern here that really plays itself out and through the entire Bible, that when God comes near to the broken heart and saves the crushed in spirit, where sin corrupts, grace restores. Where sin brings curse and death, grace brings new life. And we really see it in three ways. Look, first, the son is restored to life. The dead man sat up and he begins to speak. He's restored, secondly, back to his mother. Again, there's so much more than just a relationship being restored. As Jesus gave her back, him back to her, he's giving back more than just her son. He's giving her hope, giving back livelihood. He's giving her a future. He's giving her safety. He was restoring He's restored to life, restores her to hope and a future. Third, it's not enough that the son had his life restored. The truth is that the son now lies in the grave. He died again. There needed to be a greater restoration that's broken into this sin-crushed world. And you see it in verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God. They saw something, someone greater than the deep pain that they were in. The greater restoration that Jesus brought was that he was restored at the center of their lives as the one who is enough for whatever they go through, for whatever questions they might bring to him. He is the answer. You see this, we've seen this before in the book of Job. Job starts with the curse entering into his life and he loses everything, but at the end he's restored. But what ends up happening before that ever happens is that God gives him the greatest blessing he could give. Such a grand vision of himself that 
Job just delights. Give me back whatever. You are my greatest treasure. For you have proven that you love me and that you are greater than whatever pain and suffering comes into my life. And you see what happens. The very thing that we are most eager to avoid, pain and suffering, is the very place where Jesus will meet us and reorient us to himself. That's the hands of the Redeemer. Even pain and suffering in Jesus' hands leads to redemption. Because we all live in a broken world full of pain, suffering, and death. But we also live in a world where God is at work. Where the grace of God is restoring what sin has broken. And we're also going to a place where there is no more sin, suffering, tears, or death. Because Jesus has been raised. Not this young man. The one who raised this young man has been raised to resurrection life and is coming again. That he is our joy, and He is our hope. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, as we come to the table, it's you that we're coming to. You know where we're at. You know what's going on in our hearts. You know the particular pains, because you see us You've searched us, you know us, you have compassion and power. And so meet us. Meet us where we need to see and enjoy you the most. Apply your grace and restore those broken places in our lives. Where we are feeling the most pain, would we also experience your grace the most? Take these ordinary elements and use them to the extraordinary ends of making Jesus beautiful and believable to our suffering hearts. For we pray this in his name. Amen.